Oh, hi, listener. I didn't see you there. Welcome to our Can You Roleplay It episode on Stardust. We are starting a new format of the show where we're going to be doing a regular movie episode every two weeks. And in between those, we're going to have smaller, looser episodes focused on, at least for the time being, going back to older movies we've watched in the Swords and Satire library and doing a can you role play it on those. Or if we think that the movie that we watched the previous week is worthy of a can you role play it, then we'll do it on that. So it's going to jump around a little bit which movie we cover for each of these, but we hope you enjoy um, this new format and that you're able to use some of these ideas in your home role-playing game. Or if you're not a role-player, then we wonder how you became a listener. No, just kidding. It totally makes sense if you still listen, because we're still a movie podcast. But, you know, we hope that this is entertaining for anybody, and we're going to try to make it as open for any possible listeners to get into and enjoy regardless of whether or not you play role-playing games. Yeah, like, you could use it for other storytelling if you're a writer, or if it inspires you, if you're an artist, to create some piece of artwork off of some of our ideas, or anything else like that, or it could just be fun to listen to. Yeah. Jack, what else can the listeners use these episodes for? They can use it as whispering sweet nothings for going to sleep at night. Good idea. I know a lot of people use podcasts to fall asleep to so that they have that comforting voice of strangers uh, just speaking to them and giving them inspiration. (laughs) That's all I ever wanted. Exactly. Even if you don't play RPGs or if you're only passingly interested in them, you haven't taken the plunge yet. First off, Uh, You totally should, and um, we strongly suggest everybody try role-playing at some point in their life. Definitely. We're pretty confident that you'll become hooked. But even if that's not your main interest, we're still going to be getting into some of the deeper lore of these movies in these episodes. It's not just going to be game mechanics. In fact, we're going to focus more, I think, on story beats and elements of the world of these movies and how they relate to games, but it should be interesting to anybody because we are going to be getting deep into the mechanics of the worlds that are created for these films. And so without much further ado, let's talk about Stardust, which is the film from a past episode, uh, episode 19. So let's get into it, guys. Stardust is a magical world. I was going to say it's a high magic setting. Yeah, do you think it's high magic or or moderate magic? Definitely across the wall, it's high magic. Like, people are just so used to magic in their everyday lives, it's kind of mundane for them. Okay, okay, good call. Good point. Yeah, when Tristan's dad first walks into the bazaar just on the other side of the wall, there are, like, two-headed miniature elephants. They're selling magical charms just outside of, like, caravans. There's just, like, crates of eyeballs that look at you when you walk by. That sounds pretty high magic to me. If I'm going to compare it to something in D&D, 
as far as I understand, I might compare it to Waterdeep, the high magic city. Yes, uh, excellent comparison there. A city where you can find practically anything that your little mind can conjure up, where magic is a fact of everyday life. Yeah, and I think kind of similar to D&D, there are places in this world where it might seem like it's slightly lower magic, but in general, I think there are a lot of places where magic things are very easily accessible. And I don't think anyone in this setting could live their life without seeing magic at some point, which in my mind, that puts it at high fantasy. Yeah, it's, it's like millennials and eating ass. Like, <laughs> it's bound to happen at some point. <laughs> exactly. Thank you. That was a callback to a uh, joke I made in the uh, in episode nineteen, the original Stardust episode. So, <laughs> yeah. By the way, real quick, if you haven't listened to it yet. You might want to, before you keep going with this one, just for a little bit of context. Yeah, we'll wait here for you to go back and, and do that. And welcome back. <laughs> Did you laugh at the ass joke a second time? Oh, uh, I hope so. <laughs> yeah, I think that you're right, Jack. I think that the people of the world of this film are going to come in contact with some kind of magic at some point, even maybe people who are working in um, the more rural arts, farming and shepherding and probably shite shoveling, those people are still going to, at least at some point, have a wizard come through town and offer to sell them some magic beans, or maybe they'll see a friendly ogre traveling through town and they'll wave and say hello to them, and then the ogre will stop by and ask for... <laughs> Ask for a cup of tea or perhaps a, a coffee if they're if they've been like out doing a lot of heavy ogre work. If they like that kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, I figure ogres <laughs> probably are pretty much split down the middle between coffee and tea. Okay. Yeah, sit down with an ogre, enjoy a nice drink, listen to some Smash Mouth. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, somebody once told me the world was going to roll me. So, but that oh, being wow. said, I'm not the sharpest tool in the shed. <laughs> That's profound. <laughs> Damn, that ogre's meme. I mean, I was talking about nice ogres. Oh, yeah. Well, that's kind of the thing, right? As your brain gets smart, your head gets dumb. True. You know? Yeah, that's a great point. <laughs> but anyway, let's talk about some of the types of magic we see in this movie and yeah. see if we can extrapolate some uses of magical items, spells, and effects for your role-playing games. Definitely a shout-out to what I think is my favorite magic item in the film, and one I've wished I had for many years. The hairbrush that, as you brush your hair, makes it grow longer. Oh, That yes. was so good! I forgot about that! So do you think that comb works if you don't have any hair? Is it like a hair-growing brush? Like, could I use it, is what I'm wondering. Oh, yes. I ho I like to think that it can. You just do one stroke down the middle, and then you just get that mohawk going, you know? Oh, <laughs> oh that'd be yeah, awesome, yeah. Dude. I could also, I guess, use it on my beard, and then just get a nice, long, like, Viking Kratos beard. Nice. That's cool, too. So, Actually, you know, maybe you do need a base for hair, 
Because imagine if someone just, like, kind of took it and, like, slipped and brushed your eye with it a little bit. Oh, God. (laughs) I mean, you have eyelashes, but, like... No, that's a good point. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. This could be a real monkey's paw item, if you know what I mean. So if you want to prank somebody, you just, while they're asleep, you brush their arms a little bit, brush their eyebrows. Brush their butt. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's like the movie Rapunzel, but with butt hair. (laughs) I'm sure that's been done before. You start braiding the butt hair. Um... I had to take it that one step further, you know? Yes, of course. Um, That was cool. I, I didn't even take notes on the magical artifacts. I was taking notes on, like, the magic that the witches were performing or other people were performing. There were other... There was um some other cool magical artifacts. Unbreakable chains of silver thread. Yeah. I mean, it was used in a negative way in the movie, but I'm sure it had a useful method, too. Well, I mean, having a a rope that doesn't break, there's a lot of non-nefarious things you can do with that. And a an adventuring party in a role-playing game could really get a lot of good use out of that. Yeah, absolutely. Honestly, that's the type of low-level but interesting magic items that I find players get more excited about than anything except for actual just magic weapons. Because right. players get... Most excited about magic weapons across the board. But I've had players be really excited about, like, jars of unlimited mayonnaise. (laughs) Or a hat that plays music through the brim. Nice. And, like, characters... I've had players create characters kind of that built those magical objects into their personalities and roleplay. That's amazing. So I think that a rope that cannot be broken... Utility objects. Yeah, exactly. As a, a great utility for an adventuring party, and they will be proud to have that. Now, I will say, be very careful anytime you give your party an unbreakable anything, because they will find a way to exploit it. <laughs> Another one of the magical artifacts we did get to see was the Babylon candle. Ah, oh, yes. So cool. Kind of was the ca- yeah, that was the catalyst that started this whole mess of a movie that's a candle of debauchery right babylon and <laughs> it's some it's a candle where you can light it and think of some place or someone and travel directly to that very useful magic item mm-hmm. yeah and in the movie tristan uses it to get to the star because he was thinking of her when he lit it and it kind of like makes you explode and you fly through the air like a ball of fire and then reform once you arrive at your destination. Seems like a perfectly reasonable method of travel. <laughs> it's like a more painful, terrifying, um, like a teleporter in Star Trek. Just one that fires you like a rocket instead of splitting up your molecules and shooting them through space? Yeah. Yeah. I just like to imagine that farmer who lives out in the middle of nowhere looks up and just sees a ball of fire blazing across the sky and is like, oh, I'm fucked. (laughs) (laughs) I thought you were going to say he made a wish on Tristan's, like, smoldering corpse. Oh, I love that. Oh, God. (laughs) And when you see a stupid, uh, when you see a stupid store boy flying through the sky, you can make a wish and it'll come true. 
How beautiful. Do you think that this is something that could be translated into a role-playing game? You'd have to, like, create the object yourself. Oh, I mean, yeah, just a candle that the players can use one time to go anywhere they want. Well, in the movie, and in the story as well, the novel that the movie is based on, each candle has a limited number of uses. It's, like, three or four. Because when Tristan had it, it was already partially used, and he got to use it twice before it was used up. Okay, so limited use. Again, your players are going to abuse this item. Yeah. Maybe give it the limitations of, like, a dimensional door spell. I mean, that's really what it would be. It's just, it's it's almost like just you would create a multi-use scroll of dimensional door and call it a candle. Mm-hmm. And say that it has three to five uses. Or 1d6 uses, and you roll it, you roll the 1d6 when the party gets it, and that determines how many uses are left. That's a smart way to do that. But I think you could probably turn it into the teleport spell, even though it's a lot stronger than Dimension Door, and here's why. Right? Because this, I think Babylon Candles are pretty well-renowned for being, like, a high-value magic item, right? When the witches see it, when the witches see it, and they're like the queen witches, right? They probably should have access to some of the best magic items. Yeah, they're the baddest witches around. Yeah. They see the Babylon candle, and they're like, holy shit. (laughs) Right? Well, you know, it's so epic because, think about it, it fucking worked on the mundane side of the wall. The ordinary reality side of the wall fucking worked on the... Oh, yeah. It worked in a place where magic can't exist otherwise. So it is like this reality-bending artifact. Now, is that it? Or now, was the other side of the wall just a place where magical beings couldn't exist? Maybe magic works there, but magical beings can't? No, it's... Totally devoid of magic. I think so. I think it is totally devoid of magic, which really shows how strong the Babylon candle is. In addition to that, though, also, it's called the Babylon candle, right? Babylon is on our side of the wall. So, does that mean that Babylon candles were made on the mundane side of the wall? Or is Babylon a place in between worlds, with a with a portal between the magical and the mundane world you could use that in a campaign where at high levels your uh char- your party might travel there and have adventures on either side of reality yeah i mean i actually think it'd be fun to have maybe places where you can go between the worlds that you kind of seed i mean of course i'm drawing inspiration from the source material and Games like A Link to the Past, where the you know the Legend of Zelda game, where you can go between the regular world and the dark world. Also, I was a big fan of the concepts of the Feywild and the Shadowfell from D and D Fourth Edition. Don't at me. I liked Four E. I'm not saying it did not have its problems. You know, there's a lot of game systems where some aspects of the game involve going between two versions of the same place in different realities, basically. Yeah. And I always, I've always liked that, because I grew up playing A Link to the Past. Same. Yeah. And Chrono Trigger, which does the same thing, but with time. Yeah. I mean, it does make sense that the only portal to this other world wouldn't probably be in the middle of nowhere, England. You would assume there are others. 
Also, it kind of gives me big Buffy the Vampire Slayer vibes when it comes to, like, hell mouths. Yeah. Not saying this other world is hell, but it... It's just hell-ish. Yeah. Well, because Buffy the Vampire Slayer, it, it doesn't that take place kind of in the middle of nowhere, like a suburb outside of L.A. or something? Yeah, real shithole. And then there's just like, oh, there's a mouth to hell under my high school. Yeah. Um, and it's not the only one. It just happens to be there. That's one of them. That's a hell mouth. Yeah. yeah. It is the one that is closest to the current Slayer. Right. Yeah, so there's probably one in Babylon. Yeah. Oh, good point. I, I was going to say, I actually think if I was, you know, I would suggest if you're writing this world or, or adapting a world for this use, you could have cities whose lore is that they were built around these portals to control access to the magical world. You know, a, a lord of some kind building a kingdom decides to build their seat of power on one of these portals, near one of these portals, so that people can't just access it without their permission, or so that only they can grant their own troops to move through this portal or whatever, their own people to go through it. Yeah, and there's that old man, right? The one who guards the block in the wall, or like the, the crack in the wall, so that people can't get through. You mean the unaging man? <laughs> yes, the unaging old man. What's up with that? The old monk. Yeah, exactly. And he has, like, martial arts, and he can do flips and fight with a bow staff. And Oh, yeah. He was, I mean, I don't know. Tristan might only be, like, a level one commoner or, like, a level one rogue. So that dude was at least a level three monk, because he kicked the ass off of Tristan. Exactly. And... It's his job to make sure no one crosses the wall, right? Yep. Who gave him that job? Also, who taught him martial arts for that job? I guess the you, old man who was the, who had the job before him. <laughs> I, maybe he took like a correspondence course. Like he knew he was going to be sitting there at the wall. He wanted to like kind of beef up his resume a little bit, so he started like doing some mail order, like, martial arts catalogs and, and magazines and kind of, like... And then he's got all day to just, like, train. That's true. But to your point that people intentionally settle on these portals between worlds, they would probably set up guards that are trained specifically to stop people from crossing over. Perhaps in order of monks. Yeah, exactly. This old man could be, like, one of the last people who has that job. Also, he's, like, obviously some sort of lich that has attained evil immortality. Yeah. Well, he could be a demi-lich attaining good immortality. That's what I like to believe. He seems like a good dude. Yeah. I mean, he doesn't seem like he's malicious in any way. I, I don't... He might jump to violence a little quickly against Tristan. But then again, Tristan's probably kind of a known piece of shit in the town based on his behavior uh, that we've seen throughout the movie. I think that's true. And think about what kind of stuff comes to try and cross the wall from the other side, you know? Yeah, he could be stopping, like, dragons and stuff, just solo. He's like, of course I'm quick to violence. You have no idea what I see every day. So, I mean, well, that would support that he's good because he was only showing Tristan a tenth or a one-hundredth of his full power. Probably. 
And um, a lot of people, just the fact that the wall is also a barrier for most forms of magic, I think is a kind of a natural way to keep some of the more powerful entities out because uh, they don't want to go into a world where they all their power is gone. Well, it's not their power is gone. They evaporate. No, it's the star that does. Well, she's a magical being. Yeah, but other magical beings wouldn't evaporate. Oh, because she's being held together by magic, where other magical beings might not necessarily be, like, constituted of magic. They just have magic innate. I guess it depends on what type of magical being it was. Yeah, if you're a witch, you're not going to want to fucking cross the wall. Because you lose your power. Exactly. If you're a golem, you would deactivate as soon as you cross the wall. Yeah, then you'd die, kind of like the Star Wars. But what if you're a fairy who's, like, made of magic, like a star? You might, like, shapeshift into a natural animal or something. <laughs> into a butterfly. Butterfly. <laughs> I could really see that being the case. A hummingbird, probably. Yeah. Is it a permanent transition or only while they're on the other side? I think it's... I think if you would die or deactivate, it's permanent. If you are just transforming it or losing powers, it's probably temporary. Hmm. Unless you cross back. That's my guess. Yeah. Yeah, I kind of got the impression that, like, anything magical that crossed the barrier is just kind of disapparated, but maybe not. It was only because the star, in mundane reality, a star is stardust. Oh, that's the title of the movie. Yeah. Because by the time it gets to Earth, it will have evaporated in Earth's atmosphere. (laughs) And on the magical side of the wall, the stars are actually, like, humanoid beings yeah having read a few other neil gaiman books my in my guess as to why she turns into stardust right is because fallen stars are like you said stardust they're just rocks in space and they kind of evaporate when they come down to earth but on the magical side of the wall she's probably like the manifestation of like you know, a metaphysical sense of a star, you know, these kind of light beings. Well, also romance, it seems. She's like, you know, obsessed with romance. Yeah, exactly. She's probably like the manifestation of some metaphorical ideal. And that's why she takes human form. And she probably is actually that rock in Stardust at the same time that she is this magical being. She's probably both at once. Yeah. It's it's a conundrum. So the magic part of her can't go through the other side of the wall, like you said. Yeah. But it in her case, it I get the impression that it would be permanent. Yeah, I mean, they said that she would just turn to dust if she crossed. So magic is holding her together somehow. Right. Boy, that's a, that's a really bad issue. That's like vampires in sunlight. Like, if they are ever traveling somewhere together, Tristan and Yvain, and they cross a threshold, she is just done. I know. I guess that's why they uh, end up going into, into space, right? In the end? They don't, don't they return to, to the stars? No, they return to oh, the okay. magical side of the wall and become the rulers of the entire realm. Remember that? Well, cut this shit. I don't want to sound stupid. Don't they go to space at the very end? That's what I thought. No. It ends with them in 
this royal chamber, king and queen on the throne with everybody like clapping for them. No, no, but in the in the ending narration, I think it says that they return to the star. Let's, let's Oh fuck, uh, maybe. Stop making me sound stupid, Chelsea. <laughs> <laughs> I just forgot about that part. Stardust movie meaning. Nah. You forgot about the part where Tristan fucking zero vax himself and dies. Tristan retrieves the jewel that Yvane was wearing. As the jewel turns red, Una explains that as her son, Tristan is the last male heir of Stormhold. He becomes king with Yvane as the queen, while Dunstad and Una are reunited. After 80 years of ruling Stormhold, they use a Babylon candle to ascend to the sky, where they live together as stars. So a, a human being can become a star. So, yeah, I have issues with this idea about them living in the sky together as stars, since stars are distant suns. Not, uh, they are not, I'm sorry to break any, uh, I'm sorry to burst any of our listeners' bubbles, but the stars are not actually, like, a few inches or a few feet from each other. They are actually millions upon millions of light years away from each other. Yeah, but Jamie, when... You're traveling in astral form. You can travel by the speed of thought. Okay, but Tristan doesn't seem like the type of guy who is capable of astral travel. Yeah, he's kind of a dunce. He's probably more capable of asshole travel, because that's what he is. Yeah. I don't know if he's capable of thought, either. (laughs) I think we might have questioned that in the main episode. Yeah, you said that he has ideas, but you don't think he thinks or something like that. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> That's pretty powerful. <laughs> so a lot of good callbacks here. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I just, uh, I, Yvain talked about being up in the sky, hanging out with her brothers and sisters. Like, that's not how stars work, you know, but I guess magical, um, you know, principles of magic and all have to make it kind of work. So she is, in a way, kind of a magical artifact herself. She's a sentient one. Oof, I don't care for that. Why? That the main female role in this movie is a sentient object, not a sapient human. I said that she was an artifact, not an object. Well, I mean, I guess I'm equating the two. Okay. Like, an android could be an artifact of a particular culture, (laughs) but they have sentience and autonomy. Claire Dane's acting is a little android-like, I can see it. So I think my point still stands. All right, sure. Um, Tristan, I'm tired. It's midday. (laughs) Oh, yeah. That's right. That's right. You know, tired like an android would be. (laughs) No. Another artifact you mentioned in passing when you were reminding us of the ending of the movie was the medallion that they find that Una's brother's are trying to vie for to be the next ruler of the land of Stronghold. And, um... Stormhold. Stormhold. I can't get it straight. Um... Stormguard or some shit. That's another, like, basic utility item that could be in a game where it just lights up if you're near something in particular. Classic sting. Yep. I was thinking of that, too. Or basically any magical sword in Lord of the Rings, right? Yeah, they kind of light up. Or that, I guess, yeah, a lot of them do. A lot of light-up swords. And, I mean, it's very cool. 
Yeah, I'm more like classic any magic in Lord of the Rings. Yeah. It all just seems like, oh, it lights up. Yeah, it's just, yeah. Gandalf's staff, it lights up. The elf magic, I glow. You know what? That could be all it is, though. Like, it could be like what we were saying. Another option is, it's a light source. Yeah. That would be really cool. Handy dandy light source. Yeah. 20 feet. Maybe limit the number of uses per day. Nah, not with light. Light's a cantrip already. Okay. Yeah, you Honestly, right. it's not a very useful magic item because every adventuring party worth its salt is going to have a wizard with light or or some way to cast the light spell from one of their casters. Yeah, it's fun though and um that way you can have multiple light sources like in different areas of the you know, traveling party. It might be something that I would give to... Well, I mean, having multiple light sources is good, yeah. I was going to say, it might be something I would give as a starting magic item, since it's an inheritance. Yeah. It's a useful item that does not break the game in any way that I can think of right this second, but of course players will, will always find a way to break the game with any magic items. Or, if one of your players is a living star, all you have to do is make them happy, and they'll provide the light source for the entire party. True, but <laughs> if if any of our listeners are living stars, I apologize for all the offensive things we've said. <laughs> so what you got to do, right, is you got to design a character that's a living star, super into 90s grunge, and rarely feels happiness nice. to balance out that mechanic. That okay. seems like Evane in the beginning of this movie. Yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. I'm just getting big Captain Marvel vibes when, you know, she's wearing all the old band shirts back in the 90s. Yeah. Just imagining that as a star in this setting. That's just my headcanon. There was another magic artifact. Oh, the um, glass flower that brings you luck. Right. Or provides like a certain number of wishes. I can't remember. I think it's a luck flower. And Tristan's dad has it for most of his life, and I think he's like a successful businessman because he owns that. And he gives it to Tristan to show his mother so that she knows who Tristan is. But he uses it to try to, um, like, buy her freedom later on, which I think he succeeds at. Yeah. And then when the dad gives away the luck charm, his business goes under immediately. <laughs> And when Tristan returns, oh, wait, he never goes back. So it's kind of useful that he became the king because now they're set for life. Yo, wait, did he send a letter back home to his dad being like, hey, heads up, I'm peacing out forever? Well, his dad was there at his coronation in the magical realm. Oh, good, good. I didn't remember that. Oh, it's all good. He probably sent a letter like, hey, dad, like, we're set for life. Why don't you come check out my cool crown and stuff <laughs> hey dad i'm going into space forever <laughs> <laughs> well i think by the time they were like ruling for many years at that point so i think that by the time he went into the sky his dad was probably dead <laughs> damn chelsea <laughs> no it makes sense yeah i think I... <laughs> wait what <laughs> <laughs> we're all gonna die someday Oh, unless you join 
that faction Speak to protect yourself. the wall like the old man, yeah, you won't be immortal. Or unless you eat the heart of fallen stars. Yeah, that's how the witches um, maintain their youthful uh, appearance because they rely on that energy to use their magic. Because every time we notice yeah. every time they use their magic, they age and they start to become infirm and like it kind of sucks their life energy out. You know, you could kind of compare it to the magic in Dark Sun, which I think we've done on the podcast a few times. Whereas definitely have yeah a little bit different though, because in Dark Sun, magic drains the environment around the caster. Whereas in this case, it drains life from the caster. Then maybe it's better compared to magic in The Witcher, where you need to drain it from something else, or else you'll drain it from yourself. Exactly. I was thinking the same thing. You hit the nail on the head. So maybe eating the heart of the star replenishes you, like your life energy, and it gives you like that bonus, like a battery of life energy to use for your magic. Kind of, yeah. I think it that's pretty much how it works. The old flesh battery. And from what I noticed, it seemed like... So there were many different types of magic that we're going to talk about in a second. But it seemed like the two types that drained them the most were the transmutation types of magic. And then just their pure attack, which was like green flames. And it would make sense that those would be the most damaging spells, I think. Yeah, those were the ones that visibly altered their appearance and drained their life. Everything else was so minor, it was like single point uh, (laughs) draining of their battery, as you said, Jack. So an idea that could work for this to incorporate a slightly similar system into your RPGs I don't know how well this would work, but you could play with the idea of, for example, spells damaging the caster by a number like equal to the spell's level or maybe two times the spell level. So a level two spell would either do two or four damage depending on to the caster, depending on you know what system you go with. Oh, yeah. I don't know. I mean, I, I, players are not going to love that, but I think that there's some cool stuff that can be done with that. Making it more intangible, like every spell you cast like takes this many months off your life or something is something that nobody's going to want to track, even if it is a cool idea in the fiction of the world. Right. <clears throat> I think something that does more direct damage to the caster could make for an interesting optional choice for incorporating a similar Stardust-like magic system into your game. Definitely. Also, in Dungeons & Dragons, what school of magic are curses, typically? Because if you remember... Necromancy. Necromancy. Or or actually, probably divination. Because divination tends to deal with fate, good and bad. That makes sense. Because there's that one scene where the Queen of the Witches, whose name I don't know right now, but she... Her name was uh, (laughs) uh, Michelle Pfeiffer. (laughs) Yes. When Michelle Pfeiffer meets up with the Caravan Witch, she curses her to not be able to interact with the star whatsoever. Right. And that takes quite a bit of power out of 
her as well. Yeah, I forgot. You're right. Yeah, I thought that was a really cool use of magic as well. It was very clear guidelines. Like, you can't see it, you can't talk to it or hear it, you can't touch it. Yeah. And I think that's really cool. Yeah, that would be a powerful spell, for sure. Yeah, if you used a similar curse like that on one of your players, like, water, you can't see it. <laughs> you know, just for <laughs> example. Oh, what are these giant expanses of valleys at the corner of every city? <laughs> oh, dude. And you just start walking down, you're like, I can't breathe, what? <laughs> glug, I mean, glug, glug. <laughs> that is so powerful. I was thinking about, I've seen images online of, like, when Olympic swimmers are resurfacing and just before the water tension breaks, it looks like there's a huge, like, hill of water over their face as they're coming up. Yeah. And I saw a cursed comment that was like, what if one day water didn't let you out? <laughs> oh, God. I think that's called ice. Yeah. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that was another comment. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. And so, I mean, we all know that the water will take us all someday. So The water gets us all in the end. The ocean always wins. It's true. Even if you can't see it, it'll get you. Especially yeah. then. Yeah, even if, even if you're living in a landlocked place, someday the yeah. ocean will take you. Yeah. That's why I don't go near any beaches ever. Exactly. Too dangerous. Yes. Yeah. But... The curses, I think, are definitely a really interesting mechanic in the series, L or in the movie. Uh, like, for example, that one that I mentioned, but then Ricky Gervais' character, the most unforgettable, lovable character, right? <laughs> oh, yeah, always with Ricky Gervais, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> he gets cursed to, like, only make seagull noises, or, like, a weird screech. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think that in this context, curses would have to kind of fall into a school of magic, depending on the effect. That would be more of a transmutation effect, probably. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah, when, so when you asked, I was thinking more like bad luck curses would be more of the divination. But yeah, this this these go out of the realm of that in a lot of ways. Makes sense. Illusions, some of them would be illusions, like being unable to see... Or interact with somebody would probably be an illusion spell of some kind. Yeah, if that one curse required multiple schools of magic, no wonder it took such a huge toll on her. That makes yeah, sense. Yeah, it might have been a multi-component, a multi-spell curse. Yeah, pretty cool. Also, we were talking a little bit about their divination before. Did we mention that again already? Um, not no. in detail. The horror specsing and, and such. Oh, yeah. That happened in the movie. Yeah. Rune casting. Yeah, yeah. Chelsea, you had a pretty good list of it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they were, uh, as Jamie said, they were reading entrails to determine where they could find the star. The three magic, uh, queen witches were. And, um, they, they were actually, like, being able to divine her location through that. And another priest for Septimus, one of Una's evil brothers, and the priest was throwing the runes for him and they would land in this bowl. And depending on the way they landed, it would help him determine the fate 
of what would happen to Septimus or like his ability to find the star and and where where to find her and stuff. I've... Well, you know, um, there were also sending rituals where people could send messages to each other, mainly the three witch sisters, and also being able to scry and to right. view uh, what was happening currently in another part of the realm. Yeah, a lot of your typical D&D magic divination uses and stuff, and then some of the more kind of esoteric stuff like reading runes where you might have players possibly draw from an actual bag of runes or something and, and then give them information based on the storylines you have prepared for your campaign. Yeah. And if we were going to put this in D&D, I think the witches would pretty easily fit into the category of hags. Okay. Yeah. You know, they're old. They do a lot of kind of profane rituals with, like, you know, sacrificing animals with, like, sharpened glass daggers and stuff. And then, like, they're kind of, they're not pleasant in experience. Sounds like a typical Sunday to me. Yeah. Sacrificing animals isn't always profane, but the way the movie does it, it it's made to seem pretty bad. Yeah. And, you know, they eat the hearts of pure beings to stay young. That's pretty, it's pretty evil. I know. In addition to that, the thing that really put hags in my mind, though, is while well, they have a coven of three, and that's how many hags you need in D&D to make a coven, which gives them unique spells. But the spell that they used that really sold it for me was when Septimus is charging at the hags and is like, Time to die. Remember, they make a little clay voodoo doll of Septimus. And they're controlling him with it. Yeah. Yes. And that's something hags in D&D are kind of uniquely able to do. And hags have access to a lot of ritual magics that you wouldn't give to a player because they're too expensive and they take a long time to do and a lot of very specific components. But that's kind of what hags are all about. In a in a full-on combat fight, they're not the best. That's why I think, you know, the main characters are able to kind of kill them when they actually engage in a fight. Yeah. But their rituals are some of their strongest abilities. And that's why I think something like a voodoo doll is way up the alley of a hag. Yeah. Yeah, I think that you could replicate a lot of that with spells like Dominate Person, with... Uh, animate dead, which is another thing they can effectively do in the film. Right. Um, there's ways around that. M making <clears throat> making combat interesting with this final boss of this story arc, the 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 coven that you'd be possibly hunting down if you're following the movie story arc in some ways. You can have them have more servants, probably mind-controlled servants and, and such that are protecting them, maybe some wild animals that serve them, familiars and things like that. Definitely. And one thing I don't see utilized very much in Dungeons & Dragons, but is a thing, and it came up in the movie, layer actions, right? Yes. Where the environment around you has actions itself. And 
she's kind of using a spell in order to do it, but I would just make it a layer action when the windows are bursting inward at Tristan and Claire Danes. Yeah. Yeah, having giving giving the main witch of the you know the, the big bad evil witch of your campaign have those layer actions that kind of controls her castle. Yeah, definitely. I mean, they're fighting her in her place of magic, you yeah. know? No, I think that's great. She should have magical, yeah, she should have magical defenses up the wazoo, you know? Yeah. yeah I think up the wazoo is one of her magical spells, right? <laughs> yes. Uh, that's a great point, and I always think that it's really interesting and creates for some very engaging strategies when the environment is kind of this neutral entity working uh, against all of the parties involved. Well, in this case, it'd be it is actively working for the villain. Yeah, so it's an interesting spin on it, for sure. You could big brain it a little bit. Like, say, for example, you step into the witch's house, like the mansion, and you activate all the defensive wards that were placed on the building. So, say, for example, the traps could be neutral after that point. Like, if you get too close to the fire, there will be an explosion of flame. And then you saw that happen from one fireplace, so maybe you use, like, a gust of wind to push the evil person in front of a fireplace and have them activate an explosion. Nice. That's assuming that the uh, magic that's causing the explosions aren't coming, is not coming from the villain. Yeah, it's true. Depends on what level of puzzle you want to put into this and what level of tactical advantage you want to let people have. Maybe they could use say, having their wizard or sorcerer try to wrest control from the witch to be able to control the traps themselves. And it's like to a, use it to their a check they each have to make each round to see who is controlling them that round. Exactly. That's very cool. You can make it more dynamic. Yeah, definitely. Also, to quickly bounce back to a magic item that I forgot about, which was very cool, the lightning in a bottle... Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That was awesome. Yeah. So say you have a low magic party or just like they need a scroll. Just make it a bottle. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's cool. Bottles of magic. Yeah. I mean, it's an impractical way to carry it around, but I mean, I like it. In the movie, they got that from the airship pirates that are like gathering lightning to sell in these bottles and like they are gifted yeah. one by the captain. You know, I think it might actually be somewhat better than a scroll because they have, like, a huge canister, like an oil drum full of lightning, which they're trying to sell in bulk. So yeah, something like that could have evocation purposes in combat where, you know, you loose a horn of lightning and it just blasts someone with a single bolt. But... I'm assuming they use similar canisters to power their ship, right? It's not too far a leap. Probably. Like an energy cell? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Well, I'm glad you mentioned the ship. Let's talk about airships, because who doesn't want to talk about airships? I want to talk about them. They're a viable mode of travel in this world. That reminds me of Eberron in D&D. Ugh, everything reminds me of Eberron in D&D. &D. <laughs> 
Or at least everything should remind me of Eberron and D&D. It's kind of like the steampunk uh, version of D&D. Arcane and... punk, please? Huh? I said arcane punk, please. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> there's no steam in Eberron. I mean, there's probably steam in Eberron. I but think there is. There's trains. It's not. Yeah, but the trains are powered by magic. Really? Hence arcane punk. Okay. Yeah, they, they use air, uh, elementals. Airships are powered by utilizing air elementals to keep your ship afloat. That's cool. Is it cool or is it a form of slavery? These it are depends the more... on if they're working as part of the crew and they get some kind of payment out of it. Well, these are questions for the people who created Eberron. I know. <laughs> and if you want to homebrew some... Of those, like, philosophies. Elementals, labor rights in the Eberron setting. We could write a thesis on this, I think. Yeah. At least a treatise. But, yeah, um, we don't see a whole lot of airships, but I think when they dock at, like, an airship docking, uh, airship port. Uh, Implying to, that they're a common form of travel. Well, to sell the lightning they've uh, captured, I think we do see a few other vessels docked there as well. So it is a form of travel for some people. I think it's kind of expensive to maintain it, so not everybody can afford to have a crew and a ship. But your party's going to want an airship. At least to travel on one as part of a crew. Because if they're that expensive, it, it might be beyond their ability to procure one, unless doesn't mean they they're not going to try. It. Doesn't mean they're not going to try. <laughs> Dude, I can immediately imagine trying to run this setting in my party, being like, "All right, so how do we get an airship that uses Babylon candles?" Oh God, you're right. They would. It's been designed to be able to use that form of magic. That would be very expensive to have to refuel. Yeah, I think lightning in a bottle is probably a more <laughs> effective source of fuel. Yeah. It's a renewable resource, lightning. Mm -hmm. Yeah, see? Yeah. Babylon candles are very the opposite of that. <laughs> I know. They're extremely rare and exorbitantly expensive. I think you have to be... They're kind of like gifted to people... Or for the very wealthy, or uh, you know, you can kind of like procure them by other means. Thievery. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Well, they have to exist to be stolen. Yeah. I mean, the only reason that Tristan gets it is because his mom was a princess, right? Yes, and she had one. God, this guy is just the definition of privilege. I know. I mean, you know, he's white too. <laughs> I don't see color. <laughs> well, that's a privilege, too. <laughs> also, like, there are a few non-human humans in this movie. Excuse me? Like, Claire Dane. Right. Well, Claire Dane is a star, right? Yeah. That is true. But she's functionally a human. Yeah. Except she glows, right? Eh, I mean, I've known humans who glow a little bit. Yeah. Flavorfully, you could make her an Azimar if you didn't want to make your own star person. Yeah, I think that's a fair choice. I mean, I think there's even some Azimar who can glow, right, with their halo? Maybe. 
Yeah. They give off light sometimes. But, yeah, I would really like to see people get creative with using the D&D races in this. Like, Jamie, you mentioned an ogre, and of course that's not a playable race, but I have no idea if something like that even actually exists in Stardust. No, I was just... I was just dreaming. Yes. I think the most magical non-human thing that we saw was the unicorn. Right. That helps Claire Danes. Aside from that, it doesn't seem like there's a lot of diversity in the life. I guess there's also that mini two-headed elephant that we see for like a split second. Yeah, no, I think you would be adding more of your own content or, or adapting this world to the wider D&D world in some ways. It's true. I'm really curious to see how crocodiles and baboons live in this ecosystem, because the witches had them, so they must be there. Yeah. But yeah, I think you would just slot in elves and dwarves and your classic fantasy trope in in that regard. That makes sense. I think it would be very funny if you had all the D&D races in this world, and then on the other side of the wall, it's just humans, and the orcs are just like, I'm not gonna cross that wall. <laughs> if there are no orcs over there, there's gotta be a reason, right? <laughs> all the... Uh, I mean, that could be it. It, it uh, Yeah, that could be one idea for creating a world like this would be that there is... The boring, mundane, and lousy human world, and then on the other side of the world is where you meet all the other D&D fantasy races, and maybe a few humans who've crossed over, but that's much rarer. You know, that's actually pretty similar to the Chronicles of Narnia, if you think about it. Sure. Because there's Earth, which is only humans, then there's Narnia... And when they go there, they're like, oh, shit, humans. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's true. But in Stormhold, there could also be half races. Like, Tristan is one of those beings. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he's part human and part asshole. <laughs> I don't even know what Una is, but in like, if you're going to put this in a role-playing game, they are probably the elves. Yeah, I was going to say, probably probably like a high elf. So Tristan would be a half-elf. That explains his lack of social skills, if you're looking at lore for half-elves. I don't know, half-elves get natural charisma bonuses. It's true, but if you look at the description of their race, they're supposed to not really fit in. Yeah, so another reason why race is becoming a very unpopular concept in role-playing games, and yeah. that is one of them. Yeah, it's true. That would also explain why Tristan is so successful. Half-Elves OP. It's a thing. True. So Tristan's a swashbuckler, right? Yes. Yeah, pretty much. Or he gains levels in swashbuckling during the adventure. Well, yeah, he's a commoner. Yeah. Swashbuckler later, yeah. Definitely. Robert De Niro, clearly a bard with theater training. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yvain isn't really an adventurer, and I think that that's one of the biggest failings of this movie. She should have had more agency and more action. I think that she would be um, 
A wizard of some type. Yeah, something magical. In, or I think a sorcerer. Maybe innately so, magical. Right, sorcerer. That she makes more sense. She doesn't cast with a petty mind. She uses her sheer force of will. There even used to be a Star Pack sorcerer in 4th edition, which was very oh, cool. cool. Nope, I don't... that was a... That was a warlock. Uh, she does have um, the ability to attack or damage things. She just doesn't use it very much. She prefers diplomacy. So you could build a sorcerer around that idea. Yeah. I would also have, uh, if I was going to play in a campaign like this, based on this world, I would want to play a monk based on one of the old guards. Hell yeah. Maybe somebody who is training to be a wall guard under one of the old masters and then they picked up those skills and then somehow gets pulled into the adventure. That's great. I do like the idea of you playing like a wall guard that decided to take up a different life on the other side of the wall. It might be cool to see, like, a character that's a soldier in, like, the British army that gets sent to the other side as part of an escort mission. He's like, you know, he, maybe he was dishonorably discharged. The best kind of discharge. Yeah, and now he's taken up, like, mercenary work, you know, because he can't find any other job. You know, being a soldier without being in the military, it's a hard life, Right. So he gets hired for this job on this wall, and they're warning him about magic, and he's like, I don't buy that. And then they go to this other world, and he's like, oh, man, it's super militant over here. I fit right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, of course, there's always the murder hobo character. I probably wouldn't play that w way myself. I mean, that's I, that's what Tristan is, right? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Well, my idea for that character was, like, someone who want, like, wants to stand up for what's right, but all they know is how to fight for it. They don't really know how to, like, stand up for something other than the way they've been taught. And in this world, that would be, like, a viable way to do things. You know? I'm just saying, even the royalty is murdering each other and all the, all their henchmen. Yeah, yeah, it's a brutal, it's a brutal dictatorship that the king has created. He literally has his sons killing each other to try to become the heirs to the throne. It's true, and he's laughing too while it's happening. Yeah, and if I'm not mistaken, he did the same thing with his brothers. Yeah, yes, he did. He he points that out. That's why he's perpetuating this cycle of violence upon his own children. Yeah. So someone like this would probably be well-equipped in that world. He's a real Peter O'Toole type. Hopefully, as one of the only surviving members of that generation, Una can help counsel Tristan to changing the laws of the land and creating a more peaceful realm. Well, first she's going to have to, like, undo 20 years of shitty upbringing that Tristan had, which I don't really understand because his dad seems like such a nice guy. I don't know how Tristan ended up being such a fuckboy. I think it's because he was so sheltered. Maybe, yeah. Sometimes the best intentions can result in the worst outcomes. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. Also, the girl he's after is not very kind. And 
the guy who he competes with is also not very kind. The Witcher's Henry Cavill. Yes. So. Versus Daredevil's uh, Matt Murdock. Yes. So this was an early mashup of, of some of Netflix's best uh, <laughs> talent down yeah, the line. Yeah. That's right. So it might have been that he didn't surround himself with the best peers early on in life, you know? That's a good point. Yeah, his father's best intentions could have easily been dismantled by just the society that he was having to raise his son in. And it's tough to be a single parent. I think you're right, Jamie. I was dabbing on Tristan Hard in the main episode. Rightfully so. But he seems like at his core he wants to be a good guy. But he is very shitty, and I think it, it could be a product of the environment that he grew up in. Yeah, the people in his town seem pretty terrible. Yeah. The the few that we get to meet. Although, um, Cavill's character is pretty funny. Well, Tristan is a creative person, and he's constantly belittled by not only his peers, but his elders for this, besides his father, who tries to nurture it. Right. But when you have your whole community looking down on you for being creative it it just wears you down and so maybe we were a little too hard on him before Mm. not not his actions but i think we we kind of generalize that to um trying to describe his character and that might have been the part he might have some room to grow right and he does in the movie and the book fair yeah, with any campaign, I think it's good for a character to have flaws that they can grow on. Sure. And when I'm designing a character, I always try to ha- give them a list of things to slowly develop. Yeah, too dedicated to their work. <laughs> um, they tend to do such a good job. Like they, that's all they focus on. So you know, a lot of a lot of character flaws. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right, guys. Well, I think that pretty much wraps up everything we want to cover here. Yeah. Thank you all for listening. We hope you enjoyed this first all listeners episode of Can You Roleplay It? Make sure to let us know uh, at our email address, swordsandsatire at gmail.com, what you'd like to hear next and what your thoughts on the episode were. You could also hit us up on social media with your thoughts as well. Or anti-social media, which I'm on a lot more than social media. What is that? Uh, Mostly just notes I write to myself. <laughs> so just, like, write me one of those. Write a note, put it in a bottle, and send it through the ether. Yeah, that's that's perfect. That's a great way to reach me. Possess him, Ratatouille-style. Except he doesn't have hair, so he's well defended against that. You'll have to figure it out. Yeah, that's all it takes. And until next time... Keep rolling those dice.